Anybody glad to be at People's Church on a Sunday morning? Oh, come on. You could do better than that. It's Palm Sunday. Come on. That means you ought to just put your palms together and give God some praise. Come on, like your Red Bull excited to be in his house. I tell you, it is my honor. It is my joy and my privilege to uh, be back at People's Church again. Uh, I think I was looking up before I came. This is like my eighth time here. My eighth time here. The first time I came literally was the Sunday after my honeymoon. This is the first place I preached after my honeymoon. And now I'm married with a mortgage, two kids, and five chest hairs. I'm a grown, <laughs> grown man now. And uh, so it's awesome just on this journey to be able to come here and to make a deposit into what God is doing here. I love this church. I love your pastors. I say it all the time, but I think you're just blessed with the best of the best. And I hope you don't ever take them for granted. Come on, can we thank God for Pastor Herbert and for... Pastor Tiffany, come on, you could do better than that. Amen. And like I said, two kids, two kids, so that's new. We're family, so I'll just share with you. Seven weeks ago, we had our second child, my son, Robert Madhu III, my legacy in the earth. And let me go ahead and be that dad. Put my son up on the screen. Come on, somebody. Woo. I made that. I made that is my son. So I've graduated from Robert Madu Jr. to Robert Madu the second now, now that I have a son. And it's, it's awesome. I'm loving being a dad and uh, excited about the word. Did anybody come to get a word this morning? I'm telling you, if you feel like hearing it, like I feel like preaching it, it's going to be good in here. I, I want to look at John chapter 8 today. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And then also John chapter 1, verse 14. Anybody bring a Bible with you to church? Come on, if you got a Bible, wave it in the air like you just do care. Awesome. Some of your Bibles are glowing. That's good. Charged up your Bible last night. Amen. Can I just reiterate what Pastor Herbert says? Please make sure your face is in the place uh, next Sunday. And don't come alone. Invite somebody. I don't care if they've said no a million times. You just don't know what God is doing and how he can use you. Uh, to have them encounter his presence. So Super Bowl Sunday is like, uh, Easter Sunday is the Super Bowl Sunday for our faith. So just make sure you're here next week. It's going to be good. John chapter 8, starting at verse 1, when you got it, say yeah. yeah. Still looking for it, say hold on. Awesome. And it says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Can you say amen? 
What a beautiful passage of scripture. And just to add an addendum to this, I want to look at what might be my favorite verse in all of the Bible. John chapter 1, verse 14, it declares, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. I don't mean to preach before I preach, so don't count this as my preaching time. But, but I find it intriguing, I really do, of all the adjectives that John could ascribe to Jesus. How I many know there's a lot of adjectives we could ascribe to Jesus? We could say he's faithful. We could say he's loving. We can say he's a provider. We can say he's a protector. We can say he's good. We can say he's great. How I many know the list could just go on and on and on with a whole lot of commas? But John bypasses the commas and just uses a conjunction and says, when you see Jesus, you should see two things. Grace and truth. That the character of Jesus Christ can be simplified to two things. Grace and truth. And watch this. He says he's full of it. He's full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of it. That'd be a funny sermon title, wouldn't it? Jesus is full of it. That actually is my sermon title. I want to preach today for about five hours from the thought, Jesus is full of it. Would you help me preach? And look at the person next to you. Get in their face. Get in their personal space. And just say, neighbor. Come on, don't be afraid to talk to your neighbor in church. Come on, say, neighbor. Jesus is full of it. That neighbor was stuck up. They didn't want to talk to you. I saw it. I saw it. Find you another neighbor. Find you another neighbor. Say, other neighbor. You're my second option. But I want you to know. Jesus is full of it. And because he's full of it, you should be too. Oh, come on. If you're expecting God to speak to you, give him some praise up in here. Come on, let's pray before we go into this word. Father, I thank you for the power in your word. God, I know the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word shall stand forever. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would anoint these lips of clay that they may effectively preach out those things you've deposited in my heart and my spirit. God, we didn't come here this morning to be entertained. God, we've come to be drastically changed. Speak to us so clearly and let us leave different than the way that we came in. And somebody who loves Jesus, say amen. amen. Say amen again. Amen. People's Church, 20 plus years ago, 20 plus years ago, if you came to a church on a Sunday and you were looking for me, you would not have found me behind a pulpit preaching or promulgating the gospel of Jesus Christ. But rather, you would have found me in a kid's church Sunday school room, standing on top of a chair with my mini afro, singing a song at the top of my lungs that we sang every single Sunday. The song went a little bit like this. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand upon the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Then you had to shout. Okay, that section right there went to Sunday school. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> 
And as I was perusing over this passage of scripture, it occurred to me that what began as just a cute song as a kid has now transcended to a core belief because I really do stand upon the word of God. I am obsessed with the word of God. The word of God is the irreducible substantive essence of what it means to know who God is. His word is his selfie. If you want to know who God is, you have to get in his word. To those of you who think that book you're holding is some boring antiquated book that doesn't really relate to your life, you have lost your mind. That is the only book that's still alive. It is the only book that's still breathing. It is the only book that has power. It is the only book that was written in antiquity, but yet it can speak to the specificity of your life. There is nothing like the word of God. But although I love the entire Bible, let's be honest, we all have our favorites, don't we? And I think my favorite section has to be the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I love the Gospels. Just give me those four and no more. I've spent so much time in the Gospels, I feel like they're close personal friends of mine. I call them Matt, Marky, Mark, Uncle Luke, and Little John. I love the Gospels because it's in the Gospels that we get to see the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ himself. I get to see how he walked, how he talked, how he interacted with people. Uh, one scholar said that the Gospels are Christology in narrative form. That's just a fancy way to say that the Gospels are the closest thing that we have of a biography of the greatest man who ever walked the face of this earth, and his name is Jesus. I, I love the Gospels. I, I really love how these four Gospel writers are talking about the same Jesus, but they do it in totally different ways. Uh, almost like four film directors who've been given the same subject to film, but have each been given their own cinematic license to film it, each one of them give us a different HD view of who Jesus really is. And that's why I'm glad John is our director for today. And see, if you like long, boring documentaries, please read the book of Matthew, okay? Because Matthew, he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience, so he begins the long and laborious process of letting you know that Jesus is the fulfillment of over 300 Old Testament prophecies that were given in a 1,500-year time span. Come on, anybody in here ever read Matthew chapter 1? Get you some espresso when you read it, okay? Excitement level is right up there with the book of Leviticus, okay? For the whole first chapter, we are just scripturally inundated with baby daddy after baby daddy after baby daddy, okay? That's chapter one. If, if you like sci-fi movies, you need to read the book of Luke because Luke is a medical doctor. So Luke goes into great detail to explain the miracles that Christ did and how his miracles could do what modern medicine could not do. Uh, if you like action-packed movies where things get blown up, and people get beat up, you need to go to the book of Mark because Mark is Jesus Christ in action. Mark's so gangster, he don't even have time for baby Jesus. No, for real, read Mark. You will not find a manger in Mark. He skips Christmas and goes straight to full-grown Jesus with hair on his chest smelling like Old Spice. Mark is not playing games with you. But today, we are in the book of John. And John, ladies and gentlemen, it is a chick flick. It is a romantic movie. John expresses the love of Jesus like nobody else. You do know it was John, the disciple, who's always laying his head on the chest of Jesus. He can hear and feel his heartbeat. That's why every story in John pulsates with the personality of Jesus Christ. Who else but John could give us the Magna Carta of our faith in John 3.16 to say that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life this is the gospel of John you understand that John is the disciple whom Jesus loved 
Ooh, his favorite. That's what it says in the Bible. Never mind the fact John wrote that about himself. Said, let me let y'all know right now, I am his favorite. This is John. He doesn't even start with Jesus' earthly lineage in his gospel. It's like he's retweeting the book of Genesis. And he begins by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. And then in verse 14, it climaxes, and he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That scripture right there makes my right toe tingle. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Our whole faith hinges on that verse right there, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is the only hope that we have for humanity is the fact that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The reason why you can't sit there like we're in a library or on a golf course and give God praise is because the word became flesh and it made its dwelling among us. This is our gospel. Ooh, I feel like preaching, but let me calm down. See, what, what are the challenges we have as believers in a culture that is antithetical to the kingdom of God is that people want you to give them an argument to prove God's existence. They're like, prove, prove to me that God is real. Give me your argument. And we could talk about it, but the reality is whenever God wanted to reveal who he was to humanity, he didn't send a foolproof argument. He sent a foolproof person. God's argument for his existence was Jesus. Jesus is the argument that there is is a God. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. The proof is in the person of Jesus. Okay, let me give you some blues clues and make it real plain here today. Okay, if I am sick, if I'm sick and I'm on my deathbed, here's what I don't want you to do. Don't throw me a medical book. If I'm about to die, don't just give me a medical book. Give me a doctor. You know why? The doctor personifies the principles that are within the medical book. If I am in trouble and they're about to throw a case on me, please don't throw me a law book. Go and get me a lawyer. You know why? The lawyer personifies the principles that are within the law book. Some of y'all going to get it in a minute. If somebody robs me, if they take my Jordan collection, please don't just give me a book with the penal code, call the popo. You know why? The popo represent and personify the principles that are withheld in the penal code. Hear me, when we were stuck in our sin with no hope of redemption, we needed more than just the law. We needed more than the commandments. We needed Jesus because Jesus personifies the principles that are in the word of God. Oh, come on, somebody. Give God some praise in this place right now if you are thankful for the person of Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then John, right when I'm resting in that verse, he says something that messes us up, which is our case study for today. He says, we beheld the wonder of his glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. What? John, you can't put those two words together. How in the world could Jesus be full of grace and truth? Ladies and gentlemen, if there's two words that don't go together, it is grace and truth. Come on, somebody. One of these things is not like the other. This is a paradox. This is an oxymoron. How in the world can Jesus be full of grace 
and truth. That's like beauty and the beast. These two things don't go together. You can't say he's full of grace and truth. Come on, any husband in here will tell you that. You can't be full of grace and truth. Come on, when your wife comes out of the dressing room and she says, sweetheart, did this make me look fat? Come on, brother. You got one option. Grace, grace, and more grace. You ought to act like you offended. She asked you that. Girl, how can you say that? No, you ain't never looked fat a day in your life. Get that outfit and get six more just like it. You can't say grace. You got to give grace. If you say truth, it's going to be a cold night on the couch for you. But yet John says Jesus is full of grace and tr let's just talk about grace for a moment. How many are thankful for God's grace? Oh, the grace of God. His grace is so intoxicating. The fragrance of his grace is so amazing to think of the fact that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how scandalous the situation you've been in, that God's grace can still reach you right where you are. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for the grace of God. His grace is amazing. If you look at grace and you don't call it amazing, you don't understand what grace is. To think that God would endure a hell that he didn't deserve so that we could be the beneficiaries of a heaven that we don't deserve. Oh, there is something amazing about grace. Ooh, but right when you're resting in God's grace, then you have God's truth, his standard that is so high, that is so perfect, that is so flawless to the point that on your best day, on your best day, could have floated in here, had manna for breakfast. On your best day, your righteousness is still as filthy as rags. If I say it the way I feel like saying it, on your best day, your righteousness is still ratchet. You still hashtag jacked up on your best day because his truth, his standard is so high. God's standard is so perfect, it's so high, it would be like us having a contest in here today to see who could touch the top of the ceiling. Who could touch the top? That's God's standard, the top of the ceiling. How many know some of us would get higher than others, but we would all still be a long way off from the top? That is God's truth. And yet he declares that God is full of grace and truth. How can this be? If I was to do a personality study in this room today, most of us would lean towards one of these extremities. Very few people are balanced. Most of us lean towards one of these extremities. There are grace people in here today. Grace, grace, grace people. And you're all about love, and you're quick to forgive, and you're so nice. You're like, why can't we just all get along and just hold hands and sing kumbaya? We got grace people in here today. And they're just like, let's just love, and let's just hug, and let's just smile. Just grace, grace for the whole race. Let's just have grace. Let's just get together. You got grace people. But right next to the grace people, you got a truth person in here today and the truth people who they will let you know like a T.I. is they will tell you the truth they will shoot you and not wait to see you fall they'll say no let me tell you about yourself see no you don't want to hear the truth but I'm going to tell you the truth oh you don't like it you can't handle the truth they will shoot you with the truth so quick who they'll really do it today because it's in social media they'll hit up your Instagram page and say the most craziest thing and just shoot you in the face with truth and both of them are detrimental because the grace people sometimes in a need to show so much grace forget that there is a standard that must be upheld and the truth people who are so quick to tout their truth and point their finger forget that every time you point your finger don't forget you got four of them pointing right back at you see grace without truth is meaningless truth 
without grace is mean. But grace and truth, that is medicine for the soul. And yet God says, I am the perfect amalgamation of grace and truth. Not 50% truth, 50% grace, but 100% truth, 100% grace. And the gospel flies on the wings of grace and truth. And we see it explicitly in our text today because the Bible says, Jesus, he's in the temple and he's teaching. And in the middle of him teaching, teaching in the temple, all of a sudden the Pharisees and the scribes kick open the doors of the temple and they come in with a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery and they interrupt Jesus' sermon and say, Jesus, Jesus, stop your sermon. You know how religious people look? They always look like they smell something in the room. <laughs> stop the sermon. And they take this woman who's been caught in the act and they throw her at the feet of Jesus and say, we caught her in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says she should be stoned. What do you have to say? In the middle of his sermon, talk about a sermon interruption. This is a sermon interruption. Now, granted, Jesus was used to interruptions in his ministry. He was used to it. He was always getting interrupted. Remember, he was on his way to heal this guy's daughter one time. And as he's going, all of a sudden, this woman pulls the hem of his garment, tugging on his clothes because she got issues. And he had to stop right there and heal that woman. You remember that? Remember blind Bartimaeus one day who started shouting, Jesus, Jesus, son of David. And have mercy on me. You know he's from the hood. You know Bartimaeus was from the hood. I'll prove it to you in the Bible. He's from the hood because the Bible says that the louder he shouted and they told him to stop, the louder he got. He said, he said Jesus, I can't see, son of David. Have mercy. He was always getting interrupted. You remember one time Jesus was preaching. They cut a hole in the roof and dropped a lame dude, a dude whose life was so lame, they just dropped him at the feet. He was always getting interrupted but this whoo this is a different interruption this is not somebody hurting or needing a miracle this is somebody who was caught in the act of adultery and look at the environment to which they brought this woman into this ain't in the marketplace this ain't at target they brought her in the temple they brought her in the temple Woo! they brought the lady in the they brought her in the church Okay, all right, y'all don't want to get real. Let me tell you how I read the Bible. Here's how I read the Bible. Can you imagine on this illustrious Sunday morning that if while I'm preaching this morning, all of a sudden, in the middle of the sermon, somebody comes through those back doors, psh, kicks it open, Robert, stop the sermon. <laughs> stop it. I caught this woman in the act of adultery. We think she should be stoned. Robert, what do you have to say, Robert? You looking for Herbert, Herbert. Not Robert. People get us confused all the time. Let me get him for you real quick. Can you, can you imagine the shock that would be on your face? Can you imagine in the temple that day, the eyebrows that were raised, that came in the room? I mean, if you ever needed Olivia Pope, this is the moment right here. Brought her in the church, and I submit to you that day, that when everybody else was <gasps> sucking in air and everybody's eyebrows were raised, there was one person who never sucked in air, who never raised his eyebrows, and his name is Jesus. He sat there and watched the scenario, and I think this is a good place to insert this thought, that Jesus is not shocked by your sin. 
Jesus is not shocked by your sin. You might be shocked about it. Your family might be shocked about it. But Jesus is not shocked, nor is he intimidated by sin. As a matter of fact, that's why we're turning up next Sunday, because that's why he came to take the sting out of death and to defeat, to defeat sin. That is the power of what he came to do. Jesus is not shocked by your sin. You might be shocked by it, but Jesus is not shocked nor is he intimidated by sin. And that is good news because the Pharisees, like TMZ, thought they could shock Jesus because this was scandalous. And Jesus says, I'm not moved by this. See, the reason we get moved and we get shocked is because we see sin in categories, don't we? We see sin in categories like there's big sins and there's little sins. God doesn't see it like that. He sees sin as sin. We see sin in flavors flavors of sin. And boy, don't we get judgmental when somebody else has a different flavor of sin than we have. Uh, I'll break it down like this. Uh, my father's here with me. He travels with me quite often. And uh, on the road, uh, you got to be careful to keep your body together. And so my dad, we keep each other accountable, you know, and what we eat and make sure we try to hit the gym up. And we had said, hey, let's not do it. A few weeks ago, we said no sweets on this trip. Let's, let's do good. So we eat at this restaurant. We finish eating and I go to the restroom. Come back from the restroom. My dad is eating pecan pie. I said, what in the world are you doing? He said, don't worry about me, okay? He's, you know, he's Nigerian. He's eating the pecan pie. The waitress comes back with a dessert menu. She said, sir, would you like to see it? I said, no, I don't want to see that dessert menu. I'm not going to eat no sweets. I'm trying to be holy. Don't even bring the sweets around me. And she was about to leave. I said, well, well, what you got on the dessert menu? What you, what you got? She says, well, well, we got this brand new cheesecake out. So, oh, you got cheesecake? <laughs> See, I don't like pecan pie, but cheesecake, that's my jam. I said, let me go ahead and get a slice of the cheesecake. Now, wouldn't it be arrogant, asinine, and just crazy for me to be eating the cheesecake, cheesecake all in my nose and in between my teeth, judging my dad, talking about how dare you eat that pecan pie. At least mine has strawberries on it. It's got fruit. It's not as bad as yours. That's how some people do with sin. Just because it's not your flavor, you think you're okay. But but your body doesn't care anything about whether it's cheesecake, pecan pie, or whatever it is. It's just counting calories and knows that it affects your body all the same. Ooh, we see sin and flavors, but Jesus says, I am not shocked by sin. So they thought they could shock Jesus. And the text says something interesting. It says they used this whole scenario to trap him. They were trying to trap Jesus. Now, here's where you got to pause for a moment and give the Pharisees and the scribes some props. You got to give them kudos because this is a good trap. Ooh, this is a brilliant trap. It's such a good trap. Let me tell you why. The reason it's a good trap is because the Pharisees were right. They were right. The law of Moses was clear in Deuteronomy that the penalty for adultery was to be stoned. That was right. It was in the law because, you know, the Pharisees knew the law. Ooh, they knew the word of God. So as it relates to it being in the word of God, they were right. But isn't it funny how you can be right and still wrong? <laughs> the Pharisees were right, but they were so wrong because they knew the letter of the law, but they forgot the spirit of the law. My grandmother used to say, it's one thing to know the Bible. It's another thing to know the author. It's a difference. They had lost the heart of the law. But, but they were right. The word of God says the punishment for adultery is stoning. So watch this. If Jesus says, hold up, wait a minute, time out, don't stone her, he now tramples on the law of God. And he can't do that because they already heard his podcast when he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. So if he says don't stone her, he tramples on the law of God. 
On the other hand, if he says, let the stoning begin, get a big rock, knock her out. Then the message is not come to Jesus and get grace and get love. Now the message is come to Jesus and get knocked out. And it's on the cover of every newspaper. So what is Jesus going to do? If he upholds the law, he kills the woman. If he saves the woman, he kills the law. This is a good trap. If that was me, whoo, I would have been nervous. My hands would have been shaken. I don't know what I would have said. And this is a good trap, watch this, for an ordinary man. But Jesus was no ordinary man. He wasn't a good man. He was a God man. He was God wrapped up in flesh. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omniscient, infinite in all awareness, understanding, and insight. See, I don't just praise God because he's powerful. I praise God because he is brilliant, because he has intellect. He knows what he's doing. That's why I can trust him with my life. Don't just praise God because he has power. Praise God because he is brilliant. Because power without intellect is scary. Come on, that's why I'm praying for our nation. God, help us get leaders who will not just have power, but have some intellect too. Jesus didn't just have power, he was intellectual and they thought they could trap Jesus Ooh, on the book that he was. Oh, they thought they had him. Jesus was brilliant. Oh, my goodness. I was just thinking on this text. I wonder what Jesus' IQ was. Can you imagine? I wonder what his IQ was. Actually, scratch that. Delete that. Backspace. Jesus couldn't have had IQ. He couldn't have had IQ because IQ stands for intelligence quotient. And a quotient is a formula that is used to measure something. And you can't measure God's intelligence because his intelligence is immeasurable. So Jesus didn't even have IQ. He just had I. Maybe that's why he says, I am that I am. I am every single thing that you, oh, I feel like preaching in here today. I am the first and the last. From everlasting to everlasting, I am God. Ooh, can I just brag on our God just a little bit? Do you realize that your God has never thought of anything he didn't already think of? He has never thought of anything he didn't already think of. Because if he could think of something he hadn't already thought of, that means he could learn something. And he can't learn anything because he knows everything. Come on, somebody. This is the greatness of our God. You can trust him with your life. Do you realize nothing has ever occurred to your God? Nothing has ever occurred to him. God has never said, oh, you know what just occurred to me? No, no, no. He knows the end from the beginning. And they thought they could trap him. So they said, Jesus. The law of Moses says she should be stoned. What do you say? Jesus looks at them, hatred and venom in their eyes, because they knew the letter of the law but forgot the spirit of the law. Looks at the woman who had to be embarrassed to meet Jesus this way. Surely she wanted to meet him, but not like this, because now her private issue has gone public. There's nothing like shame when a private issue has now gone public. They say, Jesus, what do you have to say about what the law of Moses says? The Bible says that he turned his back, went down to the ground, and he starts doodling in the dirt. All while they levy their accusation and say, the law of Moses says she should be stoned. What do you say? He goes, And just starts doodling 
in the dirt as if he didn't hear, the text says. That's a nice way to say he officially ignored them. They're demanding a response, and Jesus says, oh, you want my response? And it just starts doodling in the dirt. I want to parenthetically pause here and tell somebody, you ought to just reflect the character of Jesus sometimes. Whenever your naysayers and your critics and your haters and the enemy comes with his accusations in your life, quit being so quick to react to the attack of the enemy. Sometimes the best thing you can do is not say anything. Just turn your back, get down on your knees, and remind yourself that God is the author and the finisher of your faith. Sometimes you just need to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord and know that he will fight your battles. He is your defender. He is your protector. Sometimes you just need to keep quiet. Who slap your neighbor and say, be quiet. Who sometimes the worst thing you can do is open up your mouth and react to what the enemy said. How many know silence can never be misquoted? Come on, somebody. Sometimes the best thing you can say is just, and just remind yourself who your God is. Don't say a word. Jesus is teaching us something profound because understand that Jesus did not react to the Pharisees. He responded. There is a difference between a reaction and a response. See, this is what the enemy does. He comes in your life creating chaos because he wants your reaction. That's why he's attacking your kids, because he wants your reaction. That's why he's attacking your finances, because he's after your reaction. But there's a difference between a reaction and a response. When you react, you literally react the chaos that was brought into your life because you're responding out of your emotions. Jesus was not a reactor. He was a responder. If he was a reactor, this story would read a lot differently than it does today. If Jesus was a reactor, as soon as they came in, he would have been like, why y'all keep picking on me? I'm just trying to do the will of my father. Y'all keep messing with me. No, 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 no. Cool, calm, collected. He says, I'm not a reactor. I'm a responder. You have got to be a responder and not a reactor. There's a reason when you call 911, it is called an emergency response team. Not emergency react team. Can you imagine what that phone call would sound like to 911 if it was an emergency react team? Here you are calling 911. Help, help, my son, my son. And the call would talk about, oh, what we gonna do? What we gonna do? You're like, hold up, I called you. <laughs> Not emergency reaction, emergency response. They say, calm down, where are you? What happened? What, what's going on? Response. Jesus responded, he didn't react. And, just starts writing in the dirt. So my dear friend plays softly behind me because when soft music plays behind the preacher, he sounds more spiritual. <laughs> I think we got to kind of deal with this issue of Jesus riding in the dirt because this is a hot topic in theology because everybody wants to know what was Jesus riding in the ground that day. There's so many theologians and scholars that postulate so many theories as to what Jesus was writing. One scholar says that Jesus wrote the names of all the Pharisees in the dirt and then wrote their sin next to the name. So they looked down, saw their sin put on blast, and then dropped their rock and said, I'm going to go ahead and go home. I don't know if that's true, but I like that theory. Another scholar postulates that he wrote the Ten Commandments. Somebody else said he wrote, love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And I'm a church kid. I've been in church a long time, heard a lot of preachers. And one old preacher who had a good heart, not necessarily good study habits, <laughs> he said, Jesus wrote, amazing grace, how sweet the sound has saved a wretch like me. I remember thinking, I think that song came a long time after <laughs> this moment. And I have to be honest, after hours, hours of study and contemplation and, and, and excavating and extrapolating the complexities hidden within the crevices of this biblical pericope and looking at the Greek manutext and looking at the syntax structure of this sentence, I finally know what he wrote. I got the best answer. Are you ready? I don't know. I don't know what he wrote. I don't know. And to be honest, I don't care. Because I don't want to be distracted trying to figure out what he wrote, lest I missed how he was responding. Watch this. When the law, the Pharisees, caught this woman in the act of her sin, there was no doubt she was guilty. Jesus' response to the law was to get down, touch the ground. And then the Bible says, he raised himself up and then he gave a response that exonerated this woman from being stoned. When the law caught this woman in the act, Jesus' response was to get down on the ground, touch the ground, and the Bible says he raised himself up and offered a response to this woman's sin. I hope somebody sees this. This is the power of the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, we are that woman. When we were in the act of our sin come on there's no doubt we were all guilty and the law was ready to stone us and Jesus response was to come down to earth and put on human clothes put on human skin so he could feel what we feel and then he raised himself up on a cross and that was his answer to the accusations of the law that wanted to kill me somebody ought to thank God that he raised himself up so that we could be set free we were supposed to die we were supposed to get stoned but Jesus just like with this woman he came down he, he touched that dirt that, that humanity that we are made of and he raised himself up to the point that he says no man takes my life I lay it down myself he raised himself up to offer a response to our sin so when he raised himself up he looked at him and says he who is without sin among you cast the first stone and one by one they dropped their rock he who is without sin among you what is Jesus really saying when he says he who is without sin among you is he saying nobody can ever judge people's character because people love that verse people who ain't even been in church will tell you that verse don't throw no stone at me okay don't judge me only God can judge me as if that's a better option um, <laughs> what does that verse really mean he who's without sin among you cast the first stone. We got to kind of really dig into the text to find that out. Because the reality is, whenever somebody was going to be stoned for adultery in that culture, they had strict rules as to what was to occur before the stoning. First of all, two witnesses had to catch the individuals in the very act. Not one witness, two witnesses had to see the couple in the act. Not coming out of the hotel room, in the the act. I don't need to give you the Greek translation to tell you what in the act means. Which is weird anyway because if you're caught in the act, why don't you say something and say stop what you're doing? But two witnesses had to catch him in the act and then it was law to bring the woman and the man 
to be stoned. So Pharisees, if you're trying to upkeep the law, quick question, where is the man? Do you see what's happening here? Scholars and theologians are almost sure that this whole scenario was set up by the Pharisees. They set up the woman, and the reason the man is not there is because the man was in on it too, and they were trying to trap Jesus. So when Jesus says, he who is without sin among you cast the first stone, you know what he's really saying? He's saying, I see you. I know what you did. He said, you think you're different from this woman on the ground, and you're not. You're just like her. She might have a sin of the flesh, but you have a sin of a filthy, judgmental spirit that is full of truth with no grace. And I'm not saying she's not guilty. Notice, he never says she's not guilty. He said, but I am saying you are not qualified to do the stoning. So one by one, they realized, I got to drop my rock and walk away. And the woman, Jesus finally engages her and says, woman, where are your accusers? Where are they? And I think he had to ask her this because sometimes when you have the weight of sin and shame on you, you can be so busy crying about something, you don't even realize God has already taken care of it. <laughs> he says, woman, where are your accusers? This is how I see it in my mind. I think her head was down the whole time. She was crying. She knew she was about to be killed. He says, where are your accusers? And I see her going, Jesus, how can you ask me that? You don't see all these didn't even realize God's taking care of it. That's a word for somebody. Quit carrying that guilt. Quit carrying that shame. God's forgotten about it. You forget about it. He's already dealt with it. He says, no condemners, Lord. She goes, are you going to condemn me? He says, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. And she's walking out with joy in her heart because she encountered grace and truth. In my mind, I can always see like Peter, you know, the big mouth disciple, saying, Jesus, that's it? You're going to just let her leave like that? Jesus, you can't do that. You're a rabbi. You got to uphold the law. That you see, somebody's got to pay the price for what she did. I can see Jesus saying, shut up, Peter. <laughs> Somebody is going to pay the price, but it's not going to be her. Peter, it's not even going to be you, which, by the way, fast forward, you're going to deny me three times. Won't even be the Pharisees. Somebody is going to be whipped. Somebody is going to be beaten. Somebody is going to be hung on a cross. But it won't be them. It's going to be me. I'm going to pay the price for all sin. And I can see Peter. I can see Peter going, Jesus, how can you do that? He goes, Peter, it's easy because I'm full of it. I'm full of grace and truth. You encounter me, you encounter both.